Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And I'm, I'm a, a writer. writer, but... Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today we have Farah Jasmine Griffin. Farah Jasmine Griffin was the inaugural chair of the African American and African Diaspora Studies Department at Columbia University, where she is also William B. Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature. She is the author of numerous books and the recipient of a 2021 Guggenheim Fellowship. She lives in New York. Welcome, Dr. Griffin. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And congratulations on your Guggenheim. Thank you very much. Alex and I can't wait to ask you about that. <laughs> We're so jealous. <laughs> um, but first, I would love if you could read a little bit from your new book, Read Until You Understand the Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Awesome. I'm going to read from the first chapter of the book. The chapter is titled Legacy Love Learning. My formal study of African-American history and literature did not begin until college. My love of them began much earlier with my father who believed teaching was an act of love. Because I adored my father and cherished being with him, I experienced learning as love. A natural born storyteller, he would make our weekly visits to the public library, bookstores, and many of Philadelphia's historic landmarks come alive. The history of the nation's founding was more than a rendering of facts. Through my father's eyes, it became an epic tale of bold and courageous characters challenging stuffy old men in Europe. His tellings were cinematic in their sense of adventure. An old fedora became a tri-cornered hat like those worn by the 18th century Philadelphians who changed the course of history. On days off from his job as a welder at Sunship Building Company in Chester, Pennsylvania, after work and on the weekend, he took me to Philadelphia's Elfers Alley, the nation's oldest residential street, to Independence Mall and the various sites that surrounded it. He purchased copies for me of the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, which were reproduced on parchment paper for tourists and history buffs. Before I started school, he had me memorize and recite the preamble to the Constitution, the opening of the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address, as well as the presidents of the United States, 
all skills he had learned as a Philadelphia schoolboy during the depression. He followed my recitations with questions. What do you think that means? Let's look up that word and use it in a sentence. This was not a practice he reserved for me, nor did he do it out of recognition of my intellectual precocity. My cousins, my older sister Myra and her children all received the same instruction. My father's lessons did not derive from an uncritical patriotism. At times, I think he exposed me to our nation's founding fathers and the ideals they espoused so I would understand the enormity of their transgression, the enormity of the betrayal. I'm so glad you read from the very uh, first essay, first chapter in the book, Dr. Griffin, because one of the things that's so interesting about this book is how each essay begins from such a personal place from your own life before delving into literature or painting or music, mostly literature, obviously. But I was wondering if that thread, that personal thread that is woven throughout the book was one of the places that you started or were those, you know, reverse engineered and put back into the essays at the end when you knew that you, when you wanted that to be an element of the book? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that I, I knew that I wanted to tell that personal story. Um, and it's, you know, it's, they're autobiographical, but they're really, um, I think if we were thinking of genre, more like memoir, because they're about a very specific time. They're about a time um, of learning from my father before his death, mm -hmm. his premature death, and then immediately following that. Um, and so I knew that that story was going to be a starting point, but that there were elements of the story that would then allow me to talk about um, the sort of themes and values of each chapter. So those came first, and then the body of literature or art that I talk about actually came later. It's so beautiful because I can just see that this is exactly how your father would want you to write a memoir is, is like about him, but also all the, all the things that he wanted you to know and all the things he wanted you to explore. Um, and so it's so beautiful how you lay it out that way. Um, and, and I want to know, to, to piggyback off of that question, when when did you know that you were going to make this book? How how did it start? Oh wow, I think it had um, several beginnings. So I think that that story um, about having lost my father at such a young age under somewhat traumatic circumstances. Um, oh, yes, you know I I return to a lot. I mean you know I. Mm -hmm. I think the first time I ever tried to tell a version of that story in writing, I was in high school, you know, wow. yeah. so something that I returned to it and, and it informed so much of my writing, even when it wasn't explicitly there. Mm -hmm. um, but when I decided to do it in this form, um, it was around the time leading up to the 2016 election, mm -hmm. because I wanted that's when I realized that I wanted to link that story with um, some things that I was seeing sort of unfold before mm -hmm. our eyes mm -hmm. in the course of the election. And those were, you know, mostly things about our democracy and our commitment to it. And I thought, well, when did you first even learn about 
like mm-hmm. you know, democracy or mm-hmm. those ideals. And, and those came from my father. So I thought, oh, this is a good way of bringing together that personal story with a much broader story. So you knew I, I want to write about my family and my neighborhood and, and my city. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I knew at some point, you know, that it was just a story that wanted to be told and it kept yeah. sneaking in everything. You know, <laughs> <laughs> It kept finding its way in everything that I was writing. Um, hello, hello, write us, hello. Exactly. It's like, okay, well, now you've done the academic thing, but we already, we, we kind of snuck into your academic work too. <laughs> so, you know, you may as well just come out and do it. So yes, I think so. It, if I didn't know that um, I was going to write it, it knew that I was going to. That's right. It. Yes, exactly. It, it reminds <laughs> me of what you say um, in, the, in the essay that's titled Death, Mm-hmm. Um, that you've always had the sense it's I'm I think I'm pretty much quoting you here you've always had the sense that the dead were not actually gone um, and I, I wondered if if it felt like you had the ghost of your father nearby as you were writing it did did you see those wisps that you mentioned yeah. um, you know was he was he did he seem present that's so interesting I think that um, you know I can remember a time when I was in graduate school when I I always felt like my dad was present, but there was a moment when I was in graduate school where um, I woke up in the middle of, middle of the night and I just wrote because I wrote out of the feeling that he was leaving me. Oh wow. my gosh. What I think it was is that I was afraid that I wasn't remembering him anymore. Mm-hmm. You know? And so um, I, I remember writing down every little thing that I could remember because I just felt that, you know, the farther I got away from having been in his presence, um, I wasn't going to remember as much. So I think that writing for me was a way of remembering and trying to get down um, some of the things that I was concerned I might lose. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I mean, I, I think I didn't, I didn't feel him in the way that I felt him as a child, mm-hmm. but I certainly sort of felt him through my memory of him. And I wanted to get that down on paper. That idea feels central to what this book is and that in a way the book could be viewed as a reading companion, something that could be returned back to as you reread the books mentioned in, in your own book throughout your life or for the, for the first time even. Um, there is that sense that your book could can guide you and uh, I think that there is a beautiful kind of overlap with you writing out of the the need to to remember and maintain and hold on to who your dad was and in 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 detail and power I mean I think I'm glad that you see it in that way because that's what I was hoping for right I was I was hoping like come on read these books with me right right yeah Mm-hmm. You know, join me and read them and you can disagree with me. I'm going to give you a, a, an interpretation and you're going to see why I'm going to be like explicit with you and <laughs> what has informed my interpretation, right? Um, what reading has informed it, what personal experience has informed it. And it's perfectly okay if you have a different interpretation, as long as we have the common ground of the book. Of the that book, yep. About, mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah, you, um, 
in, in the quest for justice, you say the novel can raise questions about the possibilities and goals of justice. It allows us to imagine what a society governed by an ethic of care may look like. Um, and it seems like there's an opportunity for um, incredible transformation, but, but also pain in that consideration, because there's a lot of things you have to look at directly. Mm-hmm. And, and I wonder, not enough people read. Can you imagine how much better our world would be even if people read like one book a month, you know, or, or one book every two months, even, you know, I, and I, and I wonder if they don't do it because of, of that pain yeah, or that consideration that they, they don't want. I think it's, I think there's, you know, there is pain, there is um, difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, you know, oftentimes reading doesn't give you an answer right? The best books don't give you answers, right? They just stay with you. Exactly. They don't give you answers and you leave them with more questions. Right. And all of a sudden you have more questions and there are more things you're looking for and trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, you know, we live in a world where people want answers and they don't want, they don't want to work through the kind of ambiguity Mm -hmm. uh, and the difficulty. um, And, and books just don't, you know, the best books, um, I'm distrustful of the books who have this, I have the answer. Right. You know, totally. Even opening for you to do some thinking. <laughs> uh, and so I think that that's, that is difficult and the pain is difficult, mm-hmm. um, but it's also, you know, it, there are things that one has to confront. And I think that sometimes, you know, things just seem less overwhelming if we are willing to do the hard work of confronting them and reading mm-hmm helps us confront them. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, um, in that, in that same chapter, you mention um, the importance of bearing witness. You say it deepens the seer's humanity. It gives them the opportunity to deepen their humanity. And um, it, it occurred to me that this book is your way, not only of bearing witness, but creating something that begs others to do the same. Um, yes. So it's it's doing both of those things at the same time. Were were you aware of that as you wrote? Like, is is that something that you were aiming for? Well, um, yeah, sorry. I mean, I think I was aiming for that. You you put it so well. I think I was aiming because I think that those of us who survive mm-hmm. um, have a responsibility to bear witness, mm-hmm. um, and that you know that's just you know, and that and that in bearing witness, you're beginning a process of justice. Like that, these are stories and suffering that must be acknowledged or mm-hmm. humanity mm-hmm. must be acknowledged. Um, and so, yes, you know, I, I wanted to do that for the lives that I have encountered as well as, you know, both the, the seeing the literature that has done that, but also an invitation for readers to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, even in, even in the books we read or the history that I reiterate is like, let's, well, let's be witnesses together. Yep. So let's do that. That's what that's what we should do. Mm-hmm. Was it difficult, Doctor Griffin, for you to determine? And you you allude to this, I think, early in the book. Um, but was it very difficult ultimately to decide which works of literature you would be focusing on? Did you oh. did you go back and forth on that? Yes, it was so difficult. It was much more difficult than the personal stories. <laughs> Are you serious? Oh my goodness, <laughs> it was so difficult and. Um, you know, I'd have, I, I, I actually had a list of many more books and I'll give you an example in one chapter, which was one of the more difficult chapters for me to write. I think it was a chapter on rage and resistance. Mm-hmm. And um, 
initially I had a number of more contemporary books in there. And I went back and I reread some things and I, it just wasn't working. And interesting. I had so many books there. And then um, I just stopped. I mean, certain things were happening also at the same time. So I stopped. And I think that there were a lot of um, protest. Young people were protesting all over the country. But because I keep my eye on Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Philadelphia was one of the spots where it was happening, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, maybe if I maybe my trouble is I'm trying to work through I'm too presentist. I'm mm. I'm trying to I'm too close to it. I'm too into it. So let me step back and make this one of the more historical chapters mm-hmm. and say to those young people who I greatly admired that you um, are really, you know, the same streets that you're protesting in. There were people like you in 1855. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doing the same thing and, and, you know, confronting things that they thought were unjust. And so I, once I stepped back and allowed myself to go back in history, then it emerged, you know, like, okay, this is the story you want to tell in this chapter. But that chapter initially had almost all like 20th century, 21st century writers, and it just didn't work. Wow. That we were talking about that recently with um, maybe Lee Stein, who had a book of poetry out about uh, that she wrote about the pandemic. Yeah. And we were talking about how um, there's this hesitance to write COVID into any fiction. Yes. Um, and it's, and it's because of what you're saying. It's, it's, well, it's still happening. We right. don't know what's coming. We don't know what effects this is going to have in a decade or, you know, two decades. Um, and so it it feels like important work, but it also feels like it's got to bake a little bit, right? It's mm-hmm. got to cook a little bit more, um, work its way through the, through the world a little bit more before we can really see it for what it is. Right. I mean, I think, you know, and I am sure this is the case and you're probably finding it because you're talking to writers. And I know that as a literary critic, I know it's going to like down the line, you know, scholars are going to look at it and say that so much writing was produced during the pandemic. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. So much writing was produced. And so on the one hand, it's right there in the writing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're trying to write about it, think about it, make sense of it. And yet, because we're in it and we're living it and we don't have enough distance from it, we really can't quite make sense of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And I, for me, it was um, the way the chapters unfold is within them, you know, I'm not talking about the pandemic, even though I'm finishing the book and trying to write some things in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. Then toward the end, you know, when I allow myself to be in the present, I at least acknowledge that we're in the midst of this thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, totally. I, I was so happy that you did. Um, and I loved that you put um, that you put into this book, the words of the Black Lives Matter protesters, those speeches, those wonderful, just high energy, um, devastating speeches, because I feel, I wanted to ask you about this because I feel like something like that, it gets, it's, it's a video people share it, you know, it affects us. We feel this surge of devotion and, and like commitment to get out there and do something. And then it just like gets replaced by the next thing. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that books don't, don't do right. They're there forever. The words are there forever. Um, And you putting those speeches into your book to me, it, it, it took them out of that, um, that viral world that, that, you know, 
algorithm ephemeral. world. Ephemeral, right? Exactly. And I thought, I think that is so important. Yeah. I mean, I think I needed to do it because I, you know, it was also, I thought, you know, these speeches are actually in a tradition, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and I also thought it would also make the the past become more alive because mm-hmm. like so much of what I'm writing about are people who started out as orations, mm-hmm. you know, and as orations to try to move people and to mobilize people. And here we have the same thing, but yes, also to take them out of that kind of viral ephemeral until the next thing. But remember that this moment produce this language and it mattered and it mattered mattered. yes exactly exactly and there was also during that period um when I was writing there was this beautiful video that went around and it was all of the um it was Frederick Douglass's young descendants they were reading um or reciting his what to the slave is the fourth of July speech Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, and yet they are, you know, here they are, they are the children of the moment, you know, and saying, they're talking about being in this Black Lives Matter moment. And yet they're reading um, the words of their revered ancestor Mm -hmm. um, who was trying to speak to his moment at the time. So I I fell in love with that video. And that's when I realized, oh, these videos, it's another form of getting the language out there. Yep, yep. And that kind of movement, I think, is there in your book from the very first sentences. Uh, you describe your father as a, a natural-born storyteller. Mm-hmm. And the fact that your career, your passion is, you know, literature and writing and the, the opposite of ephemeral, the opposite of, uh, not the opposite, but but a, 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 a more permanent, a more set down version i feel like that movement's right there from the very first sentences of the book it's mm-hmm. it's, it's nice mm-hmm. it's beautiful thank you thank was you. there anything that felt too personal or too precious as mm-hmm. you wrote is there anything that you sort of didn't allow yourself not that you have to tell us what it is but as yeah. you were going um you know at the time no because i felt like i was telling a lot you know, yeah. like, and I, um, I, I talk a little bit about my father's struggle with addiction mm-hmm. at some point in his life. And that was a big secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact that I was telling it and I got my mother's permission to tell yes. it um, yes. felt like um, I was, I wasn't holding anything back, you right. know? Yeah. But then later on, you know, I have cousins who are older than I am and, you know, they were more like young uncles and so when I was reading some story to one of them and he said, um, well, you know, that's how you remember it. That's not the way I remember it. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that always the way? Always the way, you know, and I thought, <laughs> I thought, well, I could see why your memory would be different because your experience was different. And, you know, partly it's because I'm so much younger than you mm-hmm. and I experienced those people differently than you did. But I thought also there probably was some things that I could have told about them that he would have been like, yes, that's who I remember them to be. <laughs> um, and it just wasn't, that wasn't the story I wanted to tell. You know, it wasn't my story. It doesn't, doesn't mean it wasn't true, but it wasn't the story that I wanted to tell. And, you know, I, I encouraged him to tell his own story <laughs> at some point. But since I'm the writer in the family. He that's thinks, right. <laughs> 
he's going to call you up and say, okay, start typing. I'm going to start talking. Every time I talk to him, he's like, when are you going to write my book? (laughs) Oh, I have, I have family members that check in with me and are like, when do you have time to sit down and take down all my life? I'm like, that's not what I do. (laughs) But I do. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Your mom is 94 now. Yes, she is. Goodness. And is she still uh, in her townhouse? She's still in her townhouse. She's wow. on time with, with me and my husband here in New York and, you know, but she's very fiercely independent. And so she will let us know that she's ready to leave us and go home. Oh she's got a remarkable network of like neighbors and friends and family that help keep her there safely. But wow. she's also, you know, she's fiercely independent and she's in very good health. So um, it, it works out. It works out well. Wow. When I got to that part in the, in the book, it, it, um, I found myself getting, you know, a little misty. I, I felt so, it was just such a full circle moment. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the struggles that your family went through, even mm-hmm. as you knew how fiercely you were loved and are loved and how much they loved each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and to know that she's, you know, she's still just this force is so beautiful. She really is. And I think she becomes one of the things that's been fascinating. And I talk about it a little bit in the book is to watch her blossom, you know, like Mm -hmm. over and over and over again um, Mm -hmm. until this very moment. And I think part of it is just her um, willingness to remain open and to learn and to learn to see the world, you know, differently. I mean, she's She's not a closed down person. She's very open. That's the secret, right? That is the yeah, secret. I, I my mother-in-law's mother is going to be 98 and she's still alive and she's still sharp as a tack. And it's that, it's that openness. It's that open curiosity in other people and what's going on in the world. Right. And, and that's the secret, I swear. Oh, no, it is. I, you know, my mother said to me once, um, she said, you know, in my generation, I was, she said, I was brought up to be homophobic. Wow. And she said, um, and just imagine how poor my life would have been had I stayed that way. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, you know? that's like, exactly oh, right. That is exactly right. Right. She's like all these beautiful people in my life, you know, that I wouldn't have known and loved and been loved by. And so that's the thing, right? It's, it's that openness. And I think in some ways, that's the, a similar kind of openness to the people who continue to read. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like they don't shut down. They stay open to possibility and change. Has she read this book? She listened to it. Ooh, cool. She listened to it and she loves the parts about herself. <laughs> <laughs> And about her sisters, you know. So yes, yes she does. She 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 has she has read it in that way. I there's a, a beautiful moment where you say she unknowingly introduced you to metaphor. Um yes. and she she talks about, you know, the snow and and you know what it looks like and what it reminds her of. And right. she just sort of opened up your your world in that way. Oh, absolutely. Opened up my world, my imagination, encouraged it. Um, you know, and um, just the way that she, I think that one of the things that I inherited from her was the ability to seek and find beauty, mm-hmm. uh, which is what she has always done. And she still does. Like, you know, she calls me with such wonder. A friend gave her an amaryllis plant, you know, mm-hmm. and those are the ones they kind of, they look ugly and it's just a bulb. And then all of a sudden there'll be a single stalk. And then there's like a big bloom. <laughs> well, my, my mother had the great green thumb. So hers has she got it for Easter and it has bloomed 
four times. God. And she says, she says, I wake up every morning and I run into that room to see what that plant is doing. And it just wow. makes my day. You know? wow. so that, that's, that's the energy that she has in the world. And I try to put that in that last chapter of the book as well. You did. You absolutely did. Um, it's just beautiful. Thank you. I was telling Alex this, um, we, you know, we had to read this book, not quickly, but we, but we needed to read it all at once, mm-hmm. um, to prepare for, for this podcast, right. but it, it's, and, and it, and it was great to do that, but it also begs to be revisited yes. again and again. Um, I, I, I will go back to your, your thoughts on mercy for the rest of my life. Oh, it, wow. it, it completely transformed my idea of mercy. Mm. Um, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. I, I encourage anyone to, to seek out that chapter because it is just incredible. And I wanted to know if that's sort of what you were thinking as well, that, that you wanted people to, to, to be going back in and finding oh, something new. I did. I mean, I thought, you know, I, you know, I, I wanted it to be readable. I wanted you to be able to sit down and read it. You know, if you needed to just read it, but I did want it to be something that you just like I do with my favorite books, you know, that you go back into or you go back in search of a sentence or a paragraph or something. I, I, I had hoped that it would be a long-term companion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to hear you say that is like, oh, great. That's, that's exactly what I had hoped for this book. And it's cool because then your, your father and your mother and your, and your neighborhood and your family and your, everyone is, is alive over and over and over again, right? It's, it's, you're revisiting these books and you're revisiting these people and they just live on and on and on. It's, it's quite beautiful how you've done that. I don't think I've ever encountered a book and, and, and I'm sure this is my ignorance that is part literary criticism, part memoir and part personal and societal history. Is is there, is there a book like that, that you know of, that you were thinking of when you wrote this? I mean, the closest, the closest book is, um, you know, Du Bois's classic, The Souls of Black Folk. Mm -hmm. And it's always been a kind of model for me, Mm -hmm. but it's not literary criticism. I think what he gave to me was, um, you know, using the sort of autobiographical, the memoir parts of it. um, And then he uses all different kinds of analysis. So it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, early sociological analysis and some historical analysis, you know, he, he showed me that there was a way one could blend those various forms of writing, mm-hmm. something that is specific to literary criticism. No. And I'll tell you, when I first started writing books that weren't strictly academic books, but that I saw as being kind of bridge building books, yeah, I was told all the time, no literary criticism. You know, you can't do <laughs> criticism. Um, you know, you can't you can't talk about a passage. And so um, it was kind of, you know, like not literally beaten out of me, but editorially beaten. <laughs> uh, and this time I just said, you know what? The hell with that. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> that's right. You know, and right. I know that's that right. who will get it. You know, they will get it. These people don't know what they're talking about. That's and right. The word, the word you use repeatedly in the book is, you know, these are your readings of these books. Yes. I feel like, you know, the word criticism, I'm not, it does, I'm, I, I don't remember encountering it nearly as often or at all compared to the word readings. And I feel like that is a bridge building word. I mean, if anything, and Lindsay and I were actually talking about how the book functions in that way before you came on, just that even if you've never read literary criticism, you could absolutely read this book. It, it is not exclusionary to someone who, 
doesn't have any kind of academic history in, in literary criticism by any means. I, I feel like it's much more open than, than you might expect it to be. It, yeah, it feels like I'm sitting in a classroom listening to an expert bring these ideas to the most humane part of me. Oh, wow. Which is, was my favorite part of, of grad school and college. Yeah. Um, and, and do you, do you bring any of your personal details into your teaching? Yeah. Um, sometimes I do. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for picking up on the use of readings versus criticism. Um, and that sometimes I do not deeply, not as deeply personal as I do here you know, Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. you know, I might say, you know, the first time I thought about this was at this moment when I was 12 or, or my husband and I were talking about this in this way and as a way to get them to open up and talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, to some extent I do. Um, And in terms of the way that I think about the readings, I, you know, I, I, I love jazz vocalists and jazz musicians. And so what I think of as a person who is doing readings of texts, I think of them like the texts are like, um, the books are like the standards in the jazz mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, My Funny Valentine or <laughs> Love for Sale. Um, those are the standards. Those are the classics. And then what you want to do is you want to see how Ella Fitzgerald is going to interpret it versus Sarah Vaughan versus Billie Holiday. Mm-hmm. That's what I think of the readings, right? The, 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 the books themselves are the, the standards. Um, and then who is, who, you bring yourself to the interpretation of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes your interpretation of the standard. So I think that, yes, you know, and, 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 and that the young people with whom I'm sharing my readings, I'm trying to encourage them to give their own and their own, they're going to see things that I don't even see, you know, yeah, um, yeah. They do it all the time. They do it all the time. <laughs> some way that uh, level of reverence that exists in just even the choice of the use of the word readings and and just even you know thinking about them in the same way as you might think of as a jazz standard it also lends I think a lot of um, credence to the approach of having less of the more recently published work in the book, just because I feel like the level of attention, not that recently published stuff does not deserve it, but you're just more sure about the older stuff. You've had more time to think about it, more times to read, more times to play the song, more times to hear others play the song. And I feel like, yeah, it, it, it really, it, it, it opened up my understanding of what you were saying as you explained it that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, because the, these are books that have stood, withstood the test of time. Um, and, you know, you're not sure that other things are going to withstand them. Although, you know, to the extent that I pick some of the younger writers for the more contemporary work, it's stuff that I'm like, okay, this piece has done enough to shape its moment sure. um, or speak to its moment that I think it would be important um, and certainly worthy of, will be able to, to live up to this kind of reading Absolutely. Yes, you 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 talk about Taneshi Coates, um, yes. which you know his book was an instant instant uh, classic. Right. Um, but I wanted to ask you. I'm glad you talked about music um, because mm-hmm. because this book isn't just it's largely about books, but there is music and art. Right. Um, 
toward the end. And I, and I wanted to know if that was something that surprised you as you wrote, did you, were you thinking it was always going to be just books or, or did you know you wanted to also include these other um, types of art that you love? So I knew that music was going to be in there. You know, I, I wasn't sure how, but I knew that it was going to be in there. And then it was the memoir that really chose the music, right? Mm. Um, I was like, okay, you know, I'm talking about all these books. And yes, you know, I started reading them when I was very young in South Philly. And um, I went to the library and I got some books and, you know, the books were really important. But hey, come on, let's be real. Like the books were not as important as the music. (laughs) So so I was like, let's be honest. um, And let's talk about the music around this time and what Mm -hmm. it meant to us. So I always knew the music was going to be there. Um, I just wasn't sure how. I was, that was less the case with the um, paintings. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I realized I was going to write that chapter that my, my mother's sewing, my mother is a seamstress. Mm-hmm. was going to be important to that chapter. Um, I I had been collecting kind of photographs and paintings of those old Singer sewing machines that reminded me of my mother's. Mm-hmm. And then I had that encounter with the Bearden painting. And so I thought this will be a very good way, um, the way that Bearden sort of lifts up the seamstress mm-hmm. um, is the way that I think about my mother as a seamstress, as her artistry. And then um, I have an f- interesting story about that, the painting of the, that was on the cover of Sula. Um, I love it, that. And I'm like, so glad it's in the book. Yeah, you know, yes. like, so it stood out to me because I remember that, for, I remember that edition of Sula. Like mm-hmm. I remember being, you know, we're, there's certain things like album covers and book covers, right? Yes. <laughs> remember them. And so I remembered that painting and I remembered how important it was. And I was looking for it because I, wanted to put it in the book. Then a very, very good friend of mine who has recently passed away, unfortunately, Valerie Boyd, who's a writer and she was the editor of Alice Walker's journals that just came out. She, and we, and we, you know, we met each other when we were in college and we both loved these black women writers so much, you know, when we were like 21, we were in New York for a summer. So she posted on Facebook that, you know, this was the first edition of Sula that I read and it had this painting on the cover. And now for my birthday, a friend has gifted me with the painting. What? Okay. My God. Right. Just as I was like, so I called her and I'm like, Val, like, you know, I just wrote this chapter. That is wild. That wild. So I, I just wrote this chapter and I, I ended up, I tracked down the painter and he gave me permission to reproduce it. And Valerie had a photographer photograph her painting. Oh my gosh. That's what God. Isn't that That's remarkable? <laughs> Those kinds of connections. That's when you're like, okay, we really are in a simulation because <laughs> how does this happen? <laughs> that even happened. And it's partly because of that. So the book cover itself um, used that painting and then the designer you know, did something else with it. Like she put a rose across it or something. Okay. So I don't have the book cover, but I actually have the painting and that's because of Valerie Boyd. How big is the painting? So I never saw it in okay. person, um, but I saw a photograph that Valerie had of it and it didn't seem like especially large, oh, Okay. Um, you know, but I'm not sure what the dimensions were. I was hoping it was like a wall, you know, I like know, just I know. <laughs> so I cool. Know. I don't don't think so, but you know, that would have been nice. (laughs) Oh, well, 
I would love to hear what I know that they didn't make it into with a few exceptions into this book, but I would love to hear if you want to tell us your favorite contemporary books and authors. And, and even if there's anything you're excited about that's coming out. Yeah. So, um, well, Jessamine Ward, I love, and mm-hmm. she did make it into the book. Um, so that was, that was good. Um, mm-hmm. And there, there, you know, other, I, I love Honoré Fanon Jeffers, the, mm. um, who has a recent novel out. Her poetry makes it into the book, but her novel doesn't. There's another novelist named Kia Cawthorn, mm. um, who would not, I don't think she would have made it because the, her books are very different, but um, I have been recommending, she wrote a historical novel called Moon and the Mars. Ooh. If you want a long read, I love huge books. <laughs> so you're going to love this book. And here, I'll just give you a quick synopsis of it because it's unlike anything. It's, it's, a, it's narrated by um, a little girl who's about eight years old. Her name is Theo. She lives in, um, I think it's called Five Corners of New York. In New York, it's like, I think Scorsese or somebody made a film with about oh, right. Leonardo DiCaprio. So she lives, she lives in that neighborhood. She's an orphan, um, but not really. Her her father is African American, and her mother was Irish American, mm. and they both die. They married, um, which would have been true. There was a lot of mixture between Irish and African Americans um, at the time, and they. Um, she goes between the tenement of her African American family and grandmother, and her Irish American family and grandmother. Wow. And she's beloved by both families. Oh, wow. Right. Even as racial tensions begin to develop, right? She's beloved by these families. And um, we see all of this through the eyes of this very precocious eight-year-old. And it's just, I mean, it's a novel that I, you know, I, I, I dream about it. So. Wow. Oh my gosh. We love that book. I, so. I love hearing, I love hearing that she's loved. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and loved by both yes you know families and she and and so I listened to part of it because there's a great actor who does all the parts and all the voices and I part of it and um the the actor does all these different accents beautifully but reading it you know just in terms of technique what um uh happens is the author will have the little girl say um She'll say, my African, you know, my black grandmother says it this way. (laughs) And my Irish grandmother says it that way. (laughs) And then you're like, oh, okay. God, how did I miss this book? It came out in 2021. I have not even heard of this. It's It's such an interesting book and it's deeply historical. I mean, it takes history very, very seriously, but, um, it's really that character that I fell in love with the character who I really cared about. Sounds amazing. Such a good recommendation. What's on the horizon for Dr. Griffin? Well, I've been, you know, um, thinking about my next book. I have a collection of essays that will be coming (gasps) out there, mostly previously published with three new pieces there. Is it um, literary criticism or? All. I mean, some of it is literary criticism. Some of it is like essays about music. Some of it is um, reproduce like pieces that I wrote. Like I, um, I wrote a piece recently on um, banning Toni Morrison's books for the Washington mm-hmm. Post. Mm-hmm. And so those kind of pieces will be in it too. And that'll be published by Norton um, Press, I think 2023, it'll be out. And um, then I'm trying to work on a book about um, 
Black Women's Friendships, which I think Ooh. will be a very fun book to write, you know, fun will you, complicated. Will you be writing about your friendship with Toni Morrison? You know, so I'm, I, it's I fun. just had to put that in there because it's yeah. so impressive and amazing, <laughs> but, but please continue. <laughs> I adored her so much and that's, Thus far, I have decided not to write about that friendship. I mean, it will find its way into the book, but it won't be the subject of the book. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think partly it's because I, I just still feel like it's such a deeply personal relationship and, a, mm-hmm. and, a, and such a gift. Mm-hmm. I think that there will be many books about people writing about their relationship to Tony. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, I just don't feel like I want to be one of them yet. Yeah. Was, was it hard to see people who maybe had less generous approaches to their friendships with her than you did. It sounds like, was it hard to have a friend that you were close to that was such a massive figure genius? Uh, I mean, just to see, I don't know. I I just, I've never known anybody on that level, obviously. I mean, what was it like to know someone who so many people wanted so much from? Oh my goodness. Um, well, you know, and this is, this is a testament to her. Um, so when you were her friend, when you were in a friendship with her, right. Um, and especially I was much younger. And so, you know, I was absolutely in awe of her and completely aware of who she was, but once you became a friend to her, you were simply her friend, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was, um, that was just like, you know, the personal relationship back and forth. And, 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 and every once in a while she would say something and I'm like, Oh, right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Okay. I just, <laughs> that. Um, I think that, so from the, there are two points of entry. So in terms of being her friend, it was not difficult. She made it easy, you mm-hmm. know, and it was a, a lovely and reciprocal and, and really rewarding friendship. Mm-hmm. Where it was difficult is once other people became aware, not even of, you know, the closeness of your friendship, but even that you might have an acquaintance was um, then treating you as a point of access. To her. Right. Yep. And, um, she, you know, she and I, we never, she never said to me, you know, don't talk to me about this. Don't bring me this. Don't, she never said those things to me. I made a decision that um, I was not going to be a point of access, mm. uh, you know, that I, I, I was never going to ask anything of her, mm-hmm. and, you know, but occasionally, you know, I might say, I just want you to know this is coming down the pike and she'll like, okay, thank you. Or, you know, but, 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 but the numbers of people for whom, you, you know, you become a point of access if you happen to know someone who is well-known, mm-hmm. um, it's just remarkable. So one day I might write about that. That's so interesting. Yeah. My goodness. Sounds like you made a wise choice. I think so. And I also think that that's why I was her friend, you know? Yep. Yeah. Yep. It made it easier on both of you, you know, to have that boundary, that clear boundary. Right. I really want to thank you for coming on. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you all were the best interlocutors. You were wonderful. So thank you. That is an honor. I absolutely (laughs) loved your book and I can't wait to, to, peek into it over the years and and visit it again and again. It's just, it's wonderful. It's read until you understand the profound wisdom of black life and literature by Farrah Jasmine Griffin.
That was great. Alex, you are so good at those things. Like when you were like, you used the word readings. I didn't even notice that. And you are so good at noticing things like that. Well, you give me a break. You were awesome tonight. I feel like you were just like on fire. Yeah, I was vibing. You were vibing. Vibing and thriving. That was what she was. She was. I was nervous. I think you and I talked about this before. I was nervous. I was intimidated by her resume and just how brilliant she is. And very similar to her book, she was open and uh, giving and a wonderful person to talk to. I forgot to ask her about her Guggenheim. I mean, what would I ask? I think I just wanted to be like, you got a Guggenheim. (laughs) That's awesome. That's insane. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Next time, next time, Dr. Griffin, we're going to ask you for real. Um, Yeah. Uh, Definitely. If you um, love uh, black literature, black art, black music, um, this book is for you. And even if you aren't familiar with a lot of it, this book is also for you because it will introduce it to you and then it will, um, open your mind to a lot of uh, concepts and, uh, emotions and history. Um, so go get it, everyone. Let us know what you think. What's been going on with you? Uh, right now I'm rubbing the shit out of my eyes because my allergies are so bad. <laughs> Do you take anything? You? Yes. I take Flonase and Claritin. Wow. I know. I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not messing around, but it's been bad. Um, Judith has been sleeping bad. Oh God. And, um, I'm reading this book called Invisible Child, which I, I believe won the Pulitzer. It's nonfiction. I, think I know that one. Yeah, it's um, it's about a family in New York City. It, it starts in like 2012, and I think it spans 10 years or maybe a little less. Um, mm-hmm. Especially focusing on one of the children. Her name is Dasani, and um, she lives like right now. She's living in a homeless shelter with her family, and there's 10 people total in her family living in one room. And, oh. it, and it's, and it's not only that, but the room is, uh, invaded by, by rodents and it's not heated. They have to heat the baby's crib by blowing a blow dryer at it all night long God damn. and nothing works that there's like one microwave in the whole building. It's so anyway, so it's, it's extreme pro- poverty in these children's lives in the city where there's, you know, billionaires. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's a really big book. It's really thorough. It goes into, you know, all the history of welfare, the history of New York city, the history of redlining, the history of, you know, the great migration and, um, and also focuses really closely on Dasani and her family and what's going on with them. So it's great, but it's also devastating. Yeah. Um, geez. If, if you've read random family, um, or there was this other one that I read recently, I'm not going to be able to remember the title of it, but it it followed a pregnant mother. And then right after she gave birth in a year in New York city, as she was trying to find housing, mm. she was in a temporary housing situation for the first year of her baby's life. And then she was supposed to, but, but the bureaucracy and just God. the utter absurdity of the system was preventing her from making any real progress. Um, Random family is one of those ones I always hear about. Monica loves that book, but I, I just, I haven't, I haven't read it. Yeah. It's amazing. 
looking up the title of that other book. Okay, it's Lauren Sandler. Okay. This is and it's called the book is called This Is All I Got by Lauren Sandler. Absolutely love that book. Also pretty devastating. Um yeah, we we need we need some change. Mm -hmm. Um, other than that, bro, (laughs) it's getting warmer. Yeah. What about you? What a grill today. (gasps) That was exciting. Uh, Home Depot on the Sunday before Memorial Day um, (laughs) was a treat. (laughs) And uh, I was being stubborn. I didn't want to wait for help. So I just lifted the thing into the car by myself like a lunatic. Bad choice. I'm fine. I'm fine. But uh, I wish I had video footage from like 30 yards away of what I looked like because, (laughs) God, it would be so dumb. Um, Let's see. Other than that, I'm watching a ton of hockey. My team is still alive, so that's great. I'm happy. Very happy. It matters to me, these stupid little games. And uh, I'm rereading The Shipping News. Oh, wow. Annie Proulx. Which is, uh, yeah, which is a favorite book of mine. And I'm having, I'm getting a ton of joy out of that. Um, I did not know that that was one of your favorite books. Yeah, I love that book. I've never read any Annie Proulx. She is, I, bet I think I would you love would her. love her. Yeah. yeah, I think actually you would love her. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually really surprised you haven't read her. Um, yeah, that book's pretty amazing. I wouldn't recommend watching the movie or being aware of the movie, but the book okay. is. Got it, got it, got it. Actually, you can get, I know you're a Libby person. I'm a Libby person too, but I, I got in the mood to like, I was reading it and then I was like, you know, driving to work, whatever. I was like, I wonder what the audiobook costs. Cause you know, how sometimes with the audiobooks, if it's a very, very, very huge bestseller, the audiobook will be like $3. Right. And that, and that was the case. So I got it. I've been listening to it as well. It's just fun to get the rhythm of those sentences in your head. Um, yeah. Good book. Love that. I, I want to read it. I will, I will do that. Like when we're on a break. <laughs> yeah. I really think you would love it. Um, got some chocolate in the mail from Erica Krause that I ate. What? In... I didn't get any chocolate, but maybe I will. There was a note in mine that said she didn't have enough for you. And <laughs> I just I actually ate that too. I ate the note. Um, I respect that. I respect yeah, that. Yeah, me too. I really appreciate that. She chose me actually, but um, oh, yeah, last that's thing. It. Yeah. I got to hang out with Dan Sean at his oh, book yeah, event yeah. in Chicago. That was awesome. I absolutely loved his new. You got to meet Jasmine. Walk. Then the next day, I was I was out there like it was 2009. I said to Alex, like mm-hmm. on them anyway, streets. I was out on them streets. Yeah, some some teens complimented my clothes, and it, <laughs> I it, I stopped dead in my tracks, and I was like, "Are you being serious?" <laughs> and they were like, "Yeah," and then they were like, "You want a slim gym?" And I was like, "No." Um, no, <laughs> but it was great. And then the next day I went to, um, Jasmine Chan, Chicago's own, um, podcast fave interviewed Emma Straub at, uh, exile in Bookville here for Emma's new book and, um, got to quickly say hi to both of them. So, you know, I'm living life out here. Yeah. I'm living life. Was it the same outfit that I said you looked great? That's the one they complimented. I mean, it must be true. Thank you. I don't yeah. think I've ever told you that. I mean, not that I don't think you look great all the time because you do, but it was just a great outfit. 
Thank you. I really appreciate that. I was, I felt like I was using my last brain cell to put together some kind of look. <laughs> I've been doing a lot of black socks and sandals when I get off work. That's a look for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a lot of compliments on the streets from teens. Oh yeah. Oh, teens they're, love the they're they slides. It. Are they slides? They are actually. Oh, teens love the slides. Yeah. They're really into it. Um, yeah. I get a lot of compliments in general, just from strangers, but uh, don't have to get into that. Yeah. Um, I was touched. So whoever those teens were, you really made an old lady's night. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye. I'm a writer, but is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop.